0: Welcome to the Foundation Years video podcast on the new development matters, non-statutory curriculum guidance, which supports the delivery of revised early years foundation stage statutory framework. I'm Jill Holden, I'm the Principal Officer of the Early Childhood Unit at the National Children's Bureau, and I'm delighted to be chairing this podcast today. I'm joined uh, by Ada Simpson, who is the Head of Early Years Quality at the Department for Education, and also by Dr. Julian Grellier, head teacher at Sheringham Nursery School and Children's Centre, and we'll also be joined by Lindsay Foster, who is the deputy head teacher at Sheringham Nursery School and Children's Centre, and Tanya Chowdhury, who's a special educational needs and disabilities coordinator, also at Sheringham. I'd like to say a huge thank you to the Foundation Years community um, who've taken the time to engage with this podcast uh, by submitting questions to us. Uh, we'll have a few Q&A breaks where we'll put your questions to our panelists. We've had an amazing response uh, from the sector and received over 100 questions. Uh, so unfortunately we won't be able to ask all of them in this podcast but I do want to assure everybody that every single question has been read um, and all of your comments have also been read and these have been passed on to both the Department for Education and to Julian. So before we get into the main part of the vodcast, I want to take this opportunity to express NCB's appreciation for everybody's hard work and dedication to the youngest children um, during what's been an incredibly challenging time. Um, NCB are champions of Early Years Practitioners and as the Department for Education's earlier stakeholder engagement partner, our role is to understand the challenges that you're facing and provide you with opportunities to share your views uh, with the department. Uh, we recognise that the reforms to the Early Years Foundation stage and the new development matters um, are areas of policy and practice where there have been a number of divergent views. We believe a healthy debate about these uh, areas of disagreement are crucial, and we regularly share feedback with the department and highlight the sector 's concerns. We also believe that now is the time to focus on the new arrangements and how we can deliver the best for our children and that 's what we 'll be focusing on today. I just want to add a little uh, sort of footnote in there if we can um, about making sure that throughout uh, any feedback we receive following the um, the vodcast that we make sure that everybody's really respectful of of each other's views. Um, Like I say, I realise there's a real diversion um, view of opinion out there, Um, but if we can make sure that any issues that are raised are looking at um, addressing policy and not directly at people, that would be fabulous. So without further ado, I'm absolutely delighted to be able to hand over to Ada Simpson from the Department of Education. So over to you, Ada, thank you.
1: Thanks very much, Jill. And if I could just start by reiterating the the thanks that you just gave there to the sector, to to everybody who works in nurseries, to childminders, to people in schools, all supporting early years children um, during the COVID ongoing ongoing pandemic. And we really, really do appreciate everything that people do here in the Department for Education. So, So thanks to each and every one of you. Uh, Also, likewise, thanks uh, for engaging with with all of these processes and with this podcast today. The focus for this podcast, as Jill says, is is very much Development Matters. But I thought it's helpful to give a little bit of the context of where this has come from and and that being around the EYFS reforms themselves. I I know that some people still sometimes have some questions around why are we doing this, uh, why have we done it in the way that, that we're doing it and what happens next. So if you don't mind, if I spend a couple of minutes just covering covering some of the sorts of queries that we still get. Um, So sometimes people ask us about the origins of EYFS reforms and why it was necessary. Um, Well, during the uh, primary assessment consultation back in 2017, there were various calls there to make improvements to the early years foundation stage. And it was at that point that the government committed to review and strengthen the EYFS. And indeed, you know some of the feedback that was received during that process has been things that very much informed the aims of the reforms and how they have been done. Uh, The UIFs reforms were then uh, developed with input from various earlier experts and practitioners, and after that point, they were piloted in uh, the 2018-2019 academic year. That pilot was with about I think 24 schools. And that was independently evaluated by NATSEM, which is all available online. And then those findings were used to refine what the the reforms were. Uh, The government then ran a consultation between October 2019 and that concluded at the end of January this year. Um, Alongside that, we also did the really well attended LED events that the NCB facilitated Uh, for us across the country. So thank you again to everybody who gave their time during that process and their ideas. We were able to make uh, refinements to parts of the EYFS on on the basis of those ideas. All of that that information um, is set out in the government response, which uh, was published in July. Um, Of course, slightly later than we would normally hope um, because of the COVID-19 pandemic And as I say, that document sets out the decisions that the Ministers took and and the things that we were able to do, acting on people's feedback and the ways in which we're proceeding with reforms. Uh, So uh, we have an early adoption year of the reforms, uh, which is happening this year, ahead of the statutory rollout from September 2021. And the overriding aims of the reforms are still very much to improve outcomes for all children at age five. And to try and address that persistent gap for for children who are eligible for free school meals uh, in terms of the good level of developments that they tend to reach compared to other children. And and we think that's incredibly important. And that's why we want to proceed with reforms, even in the the context of the challenges of COVID. And in fact, you know, arguably it's more important than ever that we work on getting all children um, to reach that expected level. The other overriding aim is um, to support teachers and practitioners by reducing their workload, by which I mean um, moving away from collecting lots of evidence and tracking data, and instead allowing teachers and practitioners to spend more of that time working with, supporting and engaging uh, their, their children in their care. I won't go into all the details of what the the changes have been to the EYFS, Um, as I say, that that is all available online. The the changes are mainly focused on the learning and development requirements uh, around the early learning goals, the educational programmes that set out the the curriculum, and also changes to the EYFS profile assessment requirements. So uh, we've removed the exceeding criteria. Um, So now that we are focused very much on getting maximum numbers of children to the expected level and supporting those emerging children and of course still uh, supporting and stretching all children in the ways that they they individually need uh, as well as the removal of statutory authority moderation. And we, we do genuinely believe that these changes will support outcomes for all children. I mentioned there the early adoption year. We're pleased to say that uh, over 2,900 schools have signed up to take part in that early adoption year. and. Uh, you know, Our position is that the EYFS itself is, is final and the, that reflects the final policy and the decisions that, as I say, Ministers have taken. Um, but we do want to really use this early adoption year to gather people's feedback on how we support implementation of the reforms by all early years providers from next year, uh, including uh, getting feedback as well on development matters. But I'll, I'll come on to that in a little bit more detail. Uh, There's very support materials and things being provided to early adopters um, and to local authorities as well, particularly because we appreciate that for local authorities they have to interact with the old EYFS and the revised one during this early adoption year. So we're grateful to everyone who's been engaging with the different support that we have started to provide and that will continue in different ways through this year. Um, We've provided a range of materials to support early adopters um, in delivering the revised EYFS this year. That includes the framework itself, the revised handbook, which will incorporate the assessment and reporting arrangements. There will be new exemplification materials provided to replace the existing suite. And those will be done very much in the vein of trying, as I say, to move away from the from the practice of collecting too much evidence and instead focusing on how we identify and observe um, what children are able to do. Um, So those will be available, they are not uh, ready yet, and we hope that COVID won't delay um, the preparation of those materials, which will include video content, which requires access to schools. The New Development Matters has been published, as we know, because that's the uh, topic of conversation today. We're also looking at a range of other support to make available, particularly for pre-reception settings as well, including uh, Minds, to help them to implement the reforms next year. So again, we'd like to hear your feedback on this, if there are particular things that you think that we could or should uh, aim to do to support people. I think that's probably all I want to say uh, to recap where EWFS reforms have come from and set the context.
0: Thank you very much uh, for that, uh, that overview there, Ada. That was really helpful. So, we've got a, a few questions that have come in, if that's okay. Like I say, we've had, had lots and lots of questions, so we've just tried to uh, compact a few here. So, if I can start with, um, the DfE have expressed strong view that they would like local authorities to promote uh, the guidance. Is it something that Ofsted will use as part of its early years' inspections?
1: yes so we do want um we'd like it if local authorities and others were prepared to promote the development matters guidance as we think it is such a useful useful thing for people to start to get familiar with ahead of ahead of rollout and then to use in informing their curriculums and practice uh, from next year and of course earlier doctors using it from this year we are working closely with ofsted on the eyfs reforms Ofsted inspections are in accordance with the EYFS as the statutory framework, but to be clear that Ofsted do not hold providers to account on adhering to development matters because it is a non-statutory guidance document. But all, all of it very much aligns, so there's nothing in development matters that, that uh, would be contradictory to what is in the EYFS.
0: So the next question we have here, Ada, is why have the characteristics of effective learning been changed when the sector responded to the consultation that these were well-respected and supported lifelong learning behaviours, as has been recognised by the World Economic Forum as key characteristics required for the
1: future workforce? Well, the characteristics of effective learning themselves have not changed. Uh, they remain as in the existing EYFS, uh, being playing and exploring, active learning, creating and thinking critically. Uh, as I've said, a key objective of our reforms is to try and reduce the burdens of collecting lots of paperwork on the teachers and practitioners. So what we have done is made the reporting on the characteristics of effective learning, which is is part of the EYFS profile assessment process, optional, but as I say, that the characteristics themselves remain the same. Thank you. Okay, so
0: the next question is, um, why has shape, space and measure been removed? Uh, There's a real concern that the removal of this entirely will lead to an expectation of teachers they did not need to introduce this area um, of the mathematics curriculum
1: and um, well uh, shape space and measure remains in the curriculum it is part of the educational program for mathematics in the EYFS on page 10 I think it is also referred to in the new development matters uh, so we're really clear from our perspectives that practitioners and teachers need to cover this but there has been a change to the early learning goals, and they, they focus more on numeracy. But it's really important to know that the early learning goals are an endpoint measure at the end of the reception year. They're very much not the curriculum. Um, okay,
0: great. Thanks ever so much, Ada. So um, am I okay to ask you, Ada, if you just give us a brief introduction to development matters before we move on to Julian? Is that okay?
1: Um, So, I I just wanted to give a bit of a background to how Development Matters was created and some of the next steps. So, Development Matters was created over an 18-month period and was overseen by the EYFS Advisory Group established by the Department for Education. Um, The process included engagement with many practitioners, with researchers, experts in early years, um, in health and child development. Uh, there was a planned vote test um, that had to be moved online because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but that did go ahead online in the spring. I think about uh, 200 practitioners that gave some really detailed and valuable feedback on the document in that process. So we're really pleased that people were still able to, to give that input. And uh, I think a lot of those people were contacted by, you know, big national organisations like PACI, DNA the Early Years Alliance, the Teaching School Council, as well as local authority officers and leads in some multi-academy trusts as well. And on the basis of the feedback that people provided, changes were made to the document, Uh, The document also draws on the work of the Newham Early Years Hub, which is a network of over 100 nursery settings, childminders and schools. And the practical content of the document was very much informed by uh, the work of Sheringham Nursery School, which leads the East London Research School. And we're very grateful to Julian, among others, who have been uh, so involved in the production of this, this document. Um, To be clear, um, this document replaces the existing Developed Matters from September 2021, so we've published it now so that the early adopters can use it during this year and to give other people time to familiarise themselves with the new document. During this year, ahead of the statutory rollout, we are also really keen to hear people's feedback on the document. Now, uh, there will hopefully be um, revisions and amendments that could be made if, for instance, there are gaps or, or what have you that people think are important to address. So we will get feedback not only from the early adopter schools, but also from the wider early years sector. Um, there will be opportunities via the Foundation Year's website. Um, so please watch out for those. And that will then be published. The final version will be published ahead of the uh, statutory rollout from September twenty. 20- 21. So that's a sort of bit of an introduction on Development Matters and thanks again to Julian and everyone involved in that process.
0: Lovely, thank you Ada, that's uh, really good to have that background and overview, so thank you very much. So with uh, no further ado, I'm really delighted to be able to hand over to Julian, who's now going to tell us all about the new Development Matters. So over to you Julian, thank you.
2: The revised Development Matters. Um, it's great to have this opportunity to um, really discuss and talk and also consider some of the questions that have come to Foundation Years um, around the, the revised um, development matters. So, a big thank you to Foundation Years for enabling this event to happen today. Thank you for all the planning and everything that's, uh, that's gone in to, uh, to this session. So, I just really want to begin, I guess, I just want to paint you a very brief picture uh, of where I am. So I'm sitting in a small room, which is actually roughly on top of where that photo was taken there of the children collaborating together uh, on that big painting. Um, and that's at Sheringham Nursery School and Children's Centre, which is here in New East London. We've got about 200 children on roll here, aged two, three, and four. And we also run a children's centre. We have a lot of, in normal times, We have a lot of contact with babies and parents, do a lot of family support work. And like Ada was saying, we also lead the Early Years Hub in Newham, which is a collection of around about 100 uh, early years settings from the PVI sector, from the school sector, and childminders working together. Um, Newham is a very ethnically diverse part of uh, London. In fact, it's often considered the most diverse region in Europe. Um, and it's an area of immense energy, and lots of stuff is always going on in Newham. but it's also an area with a lot of challenges. So we see firsthand a lot of the challenges and difficulties that families face, um, but we also see the incredible resources and strengths in our community. Like lots and lots of people watching, we stayed open for vulnerable children during the lockdown period and then reopened uh, at summer half turn time and we quite quickly filled ourselves back up to the maximum number of children we could have with the bubble then and so I can give you uh, both a first hand and a heartfelt thank you everyone who's watching for what you've done for children and for the sector and communities and families at this unprecedented time that we're all living through because I- I- I've absolutely felt both the, the joys and even today seeing some of those children coming back in after long absences from nursery and the real spring in their step. But we've also seen a great deal of, of suffering. We're here in the part of England that was worst affected uh, in terms of deaths during the height of the pandemic. And uh, we really understand much of uh, the, the terrible pain and difficulties and things that are still really out there that we don't understand yet, That again, I know a lot of you are working with. And in that context, I think that the Revised Development Matters is offering us many exciting opportunities at this point when actually things are quite quite difficult for a lot of us. Again, I really pay tribute to the incredible job that the sector has done for the early years, um, over the years. You cannot compare what children experience in the early years now with what it was like when I first started working with young children. And that is due to the incredible commitment and passion of the workforce who who have really done a remarkable job. And I think part of what's best about the early years is that we both do a great job, but we always know that there's more to do. I think there is more to do. And it's that sense that there's more to do that has driven these changes to development matters. So founded in the day-to-day realities of lots and lots of private nurseries, community nurseries, childminders, school practitioners, but also with that belief that we can do more to help children and families uh, in England. So this guidance very much comes from the early years sector. It most certainly wasn't written in a basement room in Whitehall. It was written through a lot of engagement with practitioners, with families, and with children. And it's from the sector, for the sector. I want to pay tribute to the previous development matters, which of course is still in place. Um, I think that uh, that has done a terrific job for the early years. It's brought us some very important uh, changes, for example, that focus on the characteristics characteristics of effective teaching and learning that we were hearing about earlier. Um, it, it's been a really useful document that's been uh, at my side at hand for uh, uh, many, many years since that 2012 revision. But 2012, that's eight years ago, and of course, things have changed. There's lots of new information and some things look a little bit different now than they did eight years ago. So it's time to build on that previous guidance. Um, And that's been done really through that combination of experience and practice. So much of Development Matters comes out of people's experience over many years working with diverse children and families. Um, And it also clearly uh, draws on research and evidence. So in particular, and in no particular order, It draws upon the EPSI project and the SEED project, which have looked at the impact of early years education and childcare uh, on children uh, over the medium and longer term of their lives. It draws on the FEAL study, which Professor Iran Siraj led in Australia, and the PLAY study led by the Institute of Education here in London, which look at practitioner professional development. And it also builds on much of the research and evidence that has been pulled together by other organizations. Again, in no particular order, the Education Endowment Foundation, um, the Education Policy Institute, Early Education, and the Center for Research in Early Childhood uh, in Birmingham. So there's a lot of research and evidence that it draws on. But it wouldn't be right to say that it is research and evidence driven for two reasons. First of all, there's a lot of stuff that we still are learning about and we don't necessarily have the hard research and the evidence to back it up. And secondly, I am a great believer in practice. There's a lot of wisdom and knowledge in practice and experience and the document reflects that. People are sometimes asking me at the moment, what should I do about the new development matters? And the simplest answer to that is nothing. It's here now. As a sector, we've got a whole year to get to grips with it, to get to know it, to think about our ways forward with it. So this is being introduced in a very sensible sort of time frame. And like Ada says, that also gives us some space to gather more feedback um, and make sure that it's as good as it can be. Any errors or things that need tweaking um, can be fixed. The document is about a 90-minute read. So at this stage, what I'd say to people is, find that hour and a half and get to grips with the whole document and get a feel for the the whole thing. Um, Because I think that as you read it, lots of the questions that are coming up, you'll see how things make sense and how the new document is intended to work. Again, Ada gave us a really useful intro earlier to the key objectives. So things that were very much at the forefront here. First of all, supporting children's communication. Charities like ICANN and others remind us all of the time that there are many, many children who struggle to communicate well. Some of those children have long-term needs and may need support throughout their schooling and indeed throughout their lives. And it's really important that we identify those children as early as we can and we get that support in place. But many more children have temporary delays in their communication for a whole range of different reasons. And we can help children to make a lot of progress in their communication, to become great communicators, if only we notice the difficulties they're having and act on those promptly. We also know and research for the uh, Centre for Inclusive education at UCL tells us this that not only is communication central to children's early learning it's also central to their emotional well-being children who communicate better can talk about their feelings more they can solve conflicts better they can tell somebody if they need help or support so communication is unashamedly at the heart of the changes here and the need to do better And again, that has come out of a big project. A lot of the um, content of Development Matters has come out of a big project that we've done here in Newham, funded by the Education Endowment Foundation, um, looking at how practitioners can improve what we offer uh, in the area of listening to children and developing conversations with them. The second key objective is about reducing unnecessary workload. Uh, And again, Ava's given us... Uh, a great introduction to that and I am going to talk in a bit more detail both about the challenges there um, and the ways forward that are proposed by this document. In response to that earlier consultation on assessment, there is specific guidance for the reception year included in development matters. And last and absolutely most importantly, helping every child to thrive in the early years and that focus on narrowing the gap, making sure that we are focused on helping every child to thrive. And that takes us on, I think, to a really important quotation from Becky Francis, who's the CEO of the Education Endowment Foundation, who reminds us that once children fall behind, it is hard for them to catch up and they are likely to fall further behind throughout school. That's a really stark warning from Becky Francis. Interestingly though, of course, we can turn Becky's words the other way around in the early years and what we can see from research evidence, like the EPSI project, is actually the early years is the space in our system when children have the best opportunity to catch up. Children who start in their nursery Um, with maybe some early developmental difficulties have every chance of catching up with other children and doing really well if we give them the right support. It gets harder to get that right as the children are older in the school sector. In the early years this is the key opportunity to really make a difference for children um, and to, to help as I've said every child to thrive and that focus on every child thriving again is something that I will be coming back to throughout the presentation. So, what are some of the key changes that have been made to Development Matters? So first of all, it's shorter. It's about two thirds of the length. Now, when you look at the document online, it may look quite long. The reason it looks quite long is it's been designed so it works well on the screen and on devices that most people read things on now. So there are certain design standards that are met so that the type is big and easy to read. It's also been made accessible to anyone who's reading it online, who may, for example, have a visual impairment. So it's a more accessible and readable document. And it's also a shorter document. And again, just to repeat, it's about a 90-minute read. And I really think that it's worthwhile that people give it that 90 minutes just to get a sense of the full document, how it hangs together, what it's saying. The next thing that a lot of people have noticed is there are not so many bands in the new guidance. So there used to be six bands of overlapping development. Now there are three, birth to three, nursery year of three and four-year-olds, reception year of four and five-year-olds. And there's been a lot of discussion about the pros and cons um, of doing that. And I'm just gonna say a couple of things I guess just to get people reflecting on that, the first thing I'd like to say is that we are very clearly aware, and the previous development matters is very straightforward about this too, that we don't see child development in a very neat and orderly way. It just isn't possible to lay out in order how babies learn and develop. There are some big milestones, but even they don't necessarily happen at the same time um, for all babies and for all toddlers. So we judge that it made better sense to go back to a previous iteration of the framework, which talked about birth to three as one phase of development. So I know a lot of people who are watching now, you know, they'll know that small toddler who is physically really active, doing lots and lots of different physical things, but isn't really talking that much. And they'll also know, another child of exactly the same age who's like a real chatterbox, really talking loads, but isn't necessarily quite so confident yet in terms of their physical development. It doesn't make sense to set out in such detail the order of children's development. I think people have also reflected on the fact that whereas the previous version of Development Matters did a really good job of Uh, focusing our minds on lots of the research about, for example, the early experiences children need to understand maths. Did it really make sense to suggest to practitioners what a baby uh, who's under one should be learning in maths and then another band and then another band after that? I think that we haven't found in discussions with practitioners that that sort of detail is useful for them. So the bands have been simplified. With that reduction in length and the simplification in bands, there is a deliberate effort here to make more space for professional knowledge and professional judgment. So when you reduce guidance, that makes more of a space for practitioners on the ground who know their children, their families, their communities to use their professional judgment and their knowledge. And that's, again, a deliberate intention with the new document is to make that extra space. Brevity means there's more space to develop the right curriculum for the children we're working with. So we heard from lots of practitioners who said that they often regarded as parts or even the whole of the year as a real rush to cover lots and lots of material that was set out in development matters as they highlighted it off for all of the children. Never the way that that document was intended to be used, but it was being used by that. So what we're saying here is actually the responsibility for deciding what children should be learning and how they should be learning it. That that properly rests with you, with the practitioners, with the setting, with the leadership, the leadership teams. Um, And Development Matters sits in the background there to provide guidance and support in putting together those plans. So that's, I think, a top level view of the key changes to development matters. I'm not gonna cover all of the aspects of it, um, but I do want to say a little bit about some, again, of the key uh, areas in the guidance. So I'm gonna begin with pedagogy, with the teaching and the learning and the care for children that helps them to learn. And what I think is really exciting about working in the early years is this is an incredibly difficult tightrope for all of us to walk along. So it's not straightforward to say exactly what the role of the adult is here in teaching children, helping them to learn, giving them the sort of care experiences that that, that are nurturing and help them to thrive. It's not straightforward. First of all, um, there's long been that understanding of one of the major ways of thinking about it is first of all, we think about the enabling environment. So all of the things that we provide and offer children that help them to play, explore and learn at all the different ages and stages of development that they are. at. So that's a really big part of pedagogy um, in the early years. And often that learning is driven By the children themselves, making choices and deciding what they want to learn, um, and really developing those powerful characteristics of effective learning, which Ada mentioned earlier and which are so uh, important in the early years. But secondly, of course, there is what we all do in the early years. So, those minute by minute interactions that we have with children that support their development and their learning, and they're really crucial Um, and it's the balance between those things that gives really the power and the impact of high quality early education and care so it has to be flexible you know if you are planning to do some sort of adult guided activity and the children are absolutely excited and delighted by the hundreds of wood lice that they've just found under a log outdoors, you betcha that that is where you're going to put your efforts that day. So we have to be flexible, we have to be sensible, we have to go with children's interests and fascinations um, to drive their motivation. But we also have to balance that with other pedagogical approaches um, that we might have. Again, just to give a few examples of that, um, it could be that it's really helpful to be available and supportive whilst children play freely and not to get over-involved, but to reflect and think about what they're doing and learning so that you can then put out the right resources or tweak things the next day so that the children's play will be even further extended. There'll be other times when it's helpful to get involved, to support their play, to extend it. Sometimes it's important to offer children guided learning where adults deliberately introduce things for children to learn at the right moment for those children and do actually focus the children's attention on something that it's important for the children to know or be able to do. And again, the research is really clear that there has to be a balance both of child-led learning and adult guided learning. The EPSI project tells us that roughly, as children get older in the EYFS, there should be more of that adult guided learning. And useful research, for example, into maths tells us that an entirely child-led curriculum is not effective in the early years. So there's huge value in children's freely chosen play. And we know, for example, that toddlers in their free play explore hundreds of mathematical concepts in a very rich and important way for their development. But maths is also about the linking together of some key skills and understanding which need to build over time. For example, learning how to count. And children can't necessarily get all the things they need through their own self-chosen play and learning. They need adults to introduce things to them, to show them, to teach them, to help them understand things that are difficult. So that balanced approach is absolutely critical and that is reflected in development matters, both in terms of the statements made, but also the suggestions that are given for how adults can help children to learn. Um, The last thing I'm gonna say here about pedagogy before having a pause where we can have some question and answers with Jill is that I actually think Ofsted's definition of teaching in the early years is extremely helpful. And I'm just gonna remind everyone of what that footnote says. Teaching in the early years should not be taken to imply a top-down or formal way of working. It's a broad term that covers the many different ways in which adults help young children learn. It includes their interactions with children during planned and child-initiated plan activities, communicating and modeling language, showing, explaining, demonstrating, exploring ideas, encouraging, questioning, recalling, providing a narrative for what they're doing, facilitating and setting challenges. It takes account of the equipment adults provide and the attention given to the physical environment, as well as the structure and routines of the day that establish expectations. Integral to teaching is how practitioners assess what children know, understand and can do as well as taking account of their interests and dispositions to learn, characteristics of effective learning, and how practitioners use this information to plan children's next steps in learning and monitor their progress. I think that's an incredibly useful and powerful couple of paragraphs, which tells us a lot that's important about pedagogy in the early years. So I'm gonna pause the presentation here so that we can have a break for um, question and answers uh, with Jill.
0: Fabulous. Thank you very much uh, for that, Julian. Um, Okay, so as we said, we've had um, lots and lots and lots of questions. Uh, We've tried to um, cover as many of them as we can, and we've tried to group some of them that were around similar themes. Um, So we've had a number of questions which ask about your reflections, uh, Julian. On working with development matters. Uh, So for example, how did you find working with the revised early learning goals and what are you most pleased with? So um, would you be able to just speak a little bit about how you found this process for us please?
2: Yeah of course. What, what, What was the best thing about the process? It was getting those opportunities both to have contact with lots of practitioners in diverse settings from diverse places and kind of really find the themes that matched between what they were saying and what some of the academics and researchers and experts were saying and realising that there'd been actually a lot of evolution of practice over the recent years and that it was time to bring a, bring a lot of that together. I guess I'd highlight two things, you know, first of all was our programme Manor Park Talks, where We learned so much ourselves and from the team involved with that about things that are just so core to the early years. Listening to children, being fascinated and interested in children so that they want to communicate with us, but also being really systematic. So we were using a quality rating scale there from a research project called It Is Is Three. And that really challenged us to make sure that what we were offering wasn't just good in terms of what we were doing, but that every child was part of that. That there weren't some children in really good settings who just were on the fringes and not getting involved in that communication-rich environment. So I think the, the focus there on the children, but also the focus on systematic quality improvement, Uh, And then linking that through to the researchers and people, for example, in the Centre for Inclusive Practice at the Institute of Education, um, telling us that that was the foundation of inclusion, was continuing to focus on those sorts of areas. So the way it came together in a very natural way was, was exciting to see.
0: Lovely, thank you. Um, okay, so we've had a, another um, group of questions around the the visual formatting um, of the development uh, matters document. Um, so, asking um, the fact that it's not as as visually um, stimulating, perhaps, as other as other doc the previous documents, so the colour coding, etc. So, I wonder if you could just give us a few thoughts on that for us, please.
2: Yeah, and so as as I was saying earlier, the. It's um, been done using the GovUK format, which has a very strong focus on accessibility and also that documents are easy to read on screen. All I can say is that when we tested some versions with more illustrations, people weren't that keen on them. Maybe we just didn't quite get that right. And some people definitely wanted a document that was really easy to read on screen and um, that they could navigate quickly. Um, so I think it, it's very hard to kind of get this exactly right. The previous document, which is color coded, like you said, is also not compatible with current expectations around inclusion and making sure that everyone can read a government document. But it has a friendliness that a lot of people in early years have affinity to. And I, I'm not sure that I can exactly say anything more than that, but it's, it's, it's a dilemma, perhaps.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. OK, so we've had quite a few specific questions um, about certain elements of the early learning goals and development matters and how there are some, some differences there. Um, Obviously we can't cover all of the individual questions, there are quite a few that broke those down, and, and for all our, our viewers out there watching this podcast, uh, this please do rest assured that we have captured all of those comments and, and fed those in, um, but would you be able to just give us a, a bit of a general response um, as to the rationale for not including the early learning goals in the document, and uh, why there may be some differences?
2: Sure, so Uh, Yeah, people will have noticed that a very significant change in development matters is that it doesn't include the early learning goals anymore. And of course, people are wondering why that is. So we know from research done into the reception year in school, that the early learning goals sometimes came to take the place of the reception year curriculum. So in some schools, people began in September with folders or online trackers um, with those early learning goals as the end point. And really a big piece of work that was done in the reception year was all about gathering together all of the evidence that children had reached um, the ELGs. And that had at least two problematic uh, side effects. The first is that 17 early learning goals is, is way too narrow a curriculum for a reception child. So you end up with something that is really unhelpful in our system which is that you've got children who've maybe got this label, if you like, good level of development attached to them because they've got the good level of development in terms of the early learning goals but they haven't had the right sort of reception curriculum, they haven't had that broad curriculum and so the assessment label that's been applied to them is misleading. They've been maybe helped to jump through 17 hoops, but they haven't had the sort of rich early years of learning that they should have had in the reception year. So what we're saying now is the reception year is not about primarily the early learning goals. The reception year is about creating and making the magic happen around a broad and varied and rich curriculum for those reception children. And using that United uh, Nations definition of school readiness that's so helpful, that's about making sure that the school is ready for the children, so that that curriculum is adapted and made right for the children coming in. But it's also there to make sure that the children with the support of their parents are ready for the next stage of their learning journey. So that's the balancing act that the reception year is about. The early learning goals, are a assessment schedule that should be done around about half term in the summer term, um, just as an indicator really of how children are getting on, because that can highlight to year one colleagues, both those children who are developing really well, but also where children might have some particular difficulties, um, where they might need some extra help. And it also gives parents a a particular moment to have that conversation with their child's teacher and early years educator about how their child has got on in the reception year so the ELGs are not the curriculum they, they aren't so when for example people notice that shape space and measure isn't in the ELG that doesn't mean it's not in the curriculum anymore and the EEF research into the pilot early learning goals which uh, Ada mentioned earlier that was carried out by Nat did in fact find that practitioners found the new early learning goals quicker and clearer uh, and and that that supported accurate assessment. But, you know, we have to be open and honest here. There are some indications in that research report that some reception teachers thought that because shape, space and measure had come out of the early learning goals, it wasn't important anymore. So we've got a job to do around teacher professionalism, confidence of teachers knowing why all these different aspects of maths are important uh, and how they fit into the bigger picture of the school's maths curriculum and shape, space, and measure are very, very important for the reception year.
1: Jill, if I may, I just wanted to completely support what Julian has said and how important the Department of Education thinks it is to use these reforms as a way to, to, to make clear the sort of difference between the curriculum and the early learning goals of the end point measure. And indeed, if people did have thoughts on what more might be helpful to do to make that distinction clear, then we're keen to hear those ideas as well.
2: Yeah, and the, the other thing, so that, I think that's helpful. And um, I think the other thing, Jill, that, has, that is reflected in some of the questions is that sometimes the guidance for reception year seems to go further than the early learning goal, and that's uh, intended because, as I said, the early learning goal is intended as kind of quite a quick but also precise assessment. So um, it it may well be that there is much more learning in the curriculum during the reception year than is actually assessed um, at the end of it. Um, There's also some detailed and really helpful commentary about things like what sort of experiences children might have in nursery which will support them uh, in reception year for learning phonics. Now the what's set out in Development Matters, that really reflects the research and findings in the EEF report on preparing for literacy and it also reflects the fact that in terms of the uh, Ofsted inspection system, Ofsted do not expect to see synthetic systematic phonics being taught in nursery so that's not included in that bit of the guidance. Now it may be that individual schools take a different line on that and that we've got to give space for the professional judgment teachers of schools to decide their own approach to the curriculum but in terms of the guidance what Ofsted are inspecting and what the guidance says and what the statutory frameworks say are all as aligned as closely together as they can be and as I said the research evidence comes from preparing for literacy and the research that the EEF commissioned uh, in order to put that guidance report together.
0: Thank you. Okay so um, we've got i I'll blend a couple of questions together here as well, so questions about the age bands. So um, would there being fewer age bands uh, in the new document how will practitioners who may not be as confident in their understanding of expected development stages be supported to flag when a child may not be progressing and may need some additional support? And also, are practitioners able to break down, um, particularly the birth to three age band into smaller bands, such as 0 to 1, 1 to 2, 2 to 3, etc.?
2: Yeah. And again, those, those are all really good questions. So um, in terms of Practitioners, there is a big job to do in terms of people's initial training and qualifications, and also in terms of ongoing professional development opportunities for practitioners, because it is in practitioner professional knowledge about child development that the real strength of the early years lies. So we've all got a job to do there, whether we're leading a setting or a school, um, or whether we're involved in. Um, supporting apprentices and trainees, we must make sure that our trainees and our practitioners have got that big picture of child development, and they also understand what effective care, teaching and learning looks like, and they've got mentoring and support to put that into practice. That's really crucial. Development Matters is there as a guide, but it's not sufficient in itself. And we've got to make sure that we're giving practitioners the right support and the right leadership that they need should practitioners break the birth to three bands down uh, i wouldn't advise them to do that um, i would say that if they've got a concern about the development of a baby or a toddler that they're working with one of the things they might do uh, after they've been through the, the, the first set of stages, which I guess is to spend more time observing that child, more time talking and thinking with colleagues, liaising with parents, making links with the health visitor. I think if they've still got concerns, then what would be uh, recommended them, for them to do is to use a much more detailed tool to maybe pinpoint where there are some difficulties with the child's learning and development. So for example, if it's communication, go to universally speaking, which is free and online and gives a lot of information about child development. We don't need to work in that detail for every child we're with. And it can become a crushing level of workload if we've got too much information to deal with. The large majority of children do really well in early year settings in England. They don't need all of that stuff. It's much more helpful if we focus our efforts on one or two children who maybe potentially do have difficulties and that's where we need to do much more in depth observation and assessment work and multi-professional work for those children.
0: Thank you again for that, Julian. Sure. I'll just ask one more question just now we'll just yep. squeeze another one in. Um, okay, so the question here is why is there not a focus on technology within this guidance? And that's been phased, in particularly important, how it's been particularly important in light of Covid.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, the um, previous versions of Development Matters have all had uh, an area of learning which is around technology and in particular information technology. I think a big part of the rationale there was that uh, particularly disadvantaged children might not have had access to information technology at home but it's something that they could have in their early years setting so it was important to provide it. Okay, 2021 let's be completely honest we're not faced with lots of children who don't have access to ICT. Uh, in fact Uh, children's worlds are are full of ICT um, at the moment so the new guidance sees ICT in a rather different way which is it just sees it as one of the many modes of children's learning and development and rather than being a thing in itself what we see is what you might think of as blended or kind of mode shifting behavior by children so you know a child starts off seeing something, maybe on YouTube, maybe a bit of a superhero cartoon on YouTube, and then they start to play uh, at that idea, either themselves using their whole body and dressing up, or maybe with little people, uh, small world play, uh, and then they may move back to their device again. So children are very, very fluid. ICT is not a thing in itself for young children with kind of specific boundaries it's just another way they play and learn and communicate um so that's very much how the the new guidance sees it
0: lovely thank you very much i would like to say i'll give you a bit of a break but i'll just give you a break from me interrogating you (laughs) Uh, so so if i could uh, i'll let you have a drink of water first but yeah if you could and then carry on with your part two of your presentation, that would be absolutely wonderful, so thank you
2: Julian. No worries and I have to say that felt as unlike an interrogation as something (laughs) could and I hope that you know if there's kind of one thing that comes out of video discussions like this more than anything else I really hope it is in the value and the power of professional discussion um, amongst practitioners and and I've said repeatedly to a few people whose eyes are now probably glazing over that you know, this year is not about a kind of hard sell for development matters. It's about professional dialogue, professional debate, um, respecting different positions and understandings because of that shared desire to get things right for children. Um, And I'm really being impressed by a lot of the debate and discussions that have actually been held um, with practitioners on the way. You know, there's this thing in early years, isn't there, about how things kind of Come around and go away, and people of a certain age will remember that a very groundbreaking moment uh, in early years in England was curriculum guidance for the early years foundation stage, uh, round about the turn of the century, which I was really privileged to be part of the development of um, with with Leslie Stags. And at that point, there was this very strong focus on curriculum in the early years, but curriculum got less and less talked about. Um, and here, there is a very definite effort to bring curriculum back as a word we use a lot in early years, but with clearly an early years specific set of meanings. So curriculum is an important term, I think, for us to unpick and, and think about when we're looking at the new development matters. So what do we mean by curriculum? So the first thing I'd say is that the curriculum is that top level view of the things you want children to learn whilst they're with you in your setting. And one of the examples I quite often give um, here at Sheringham is how we think about playing and learning with wheeled toys for kids. So we get lots of babies and toddlers in normal time coming into our children's centre and we've got some really lovely wooden four-wheel push-along wheeled toys and gradually those kind of toddlers clamber onto them and scoot around on them with their feet and get used to sort of sitting and balancing and and moving. And many of those children will then come to us as two-year-olds. And we still have those toys available in our two-year-old provision. But we also introduce small pedal trikes to children at that point. So there you've got um, not only the sitting and the moving, but you've also got the handlebars to steer the seat's a bit smaller, you've got pedals. It's really challenging for toddlers to use a trike. And we all know that often at first, they will scoot along with their feet and the pedals are just annoying for them. And then some of them kind of almost quite naturally just start pedaling and get the hang of that by watching other children. Some children, you've got to really show them how to use the pedals and give them quite a bit of encouragement. Um, Some children can't wait to get on them. Other children, you might have to take the competition of the others away and give them a bit of quiet time on a trike for them to get their confidence going. And then when children move into our three and four provision, they have balance bikes. So those are two wheel bikes without pedals. So their children have to learn a lot about balance because those are tricky to balance on for them and they find that difficult at first. And then when they're balancing, there are pedal bikes without stabilizers and that's where you're looking for them to bring together all of those things they know the pedaling the steering the balancing so that they can uh, ride a bike without stabilizers and you know there's a lot of thrills and spills on 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 the way of course so that so if you just think of four-wheel toy to sit on and push along trike balance bike bike that's a kind of top-level view of children's progress in just one line of physical development. Um, And that's why we talk about the curriculum as a progress model. So if children came into our three and four area and still had exactly the same equipment that they had in the two-year area, then we're not offering them that progress model. How children make that progress is largely due to, uh, first of all, their own drive to learn and to do things. And secondly, the help, or sometimes we call it the scaffolding, that adults give them. That's that really skilled way that adults give children just enough help to do something. And then they gradually withdraw the help until the child can do it um, on their own. So the curriculum in that way is a progress model. That's very much about what in Development Matters is the focus on secure learning. So you want children to practice and repeat and be able to do things over and over again until they're very, very fluent and confident um, at doing them. Um, What Development Matters is saying is less helpful is if you've got this idea of all these different things which children must do, and you're highlighting them off. So you're moving children very quickly from one thing to the next because you're saying, okay, they can do these things, but they've got all of these gaps. Um, or you're doing assessments of children against lots of bullet points in Development Matters, and you're saying, okay, they've got all of these next steps. And the next thing you know, you don't have a curriculum anymore. What you've got, say you've got two or three next steps in a setting like this, you've got four to 500 learning points to try and plan around. And then you lose the coherence and you lose the progress model. So we think in much bigger pictures than that. We think about children learning to ride a bike, or children learning to make a cake independently, uh, or children learning to uh, saw and, and uh, either nail or stick together bits of wood or cut bits of fabric and stick them together. We tend to think in much bigger pictures uh, in our curriculum, in our progress model. That curriculum has to be inclusive. So it's really important, again, that what we don't end up with is lots of children who are all in the same space, but actually kids with special needs and disabilities have a quite different curriculum to everyone else. So they might be in the room or in the garden, but they're actually doing something quite different. So inclusion means making sure that every child can access that curriculum and thrive as they access it. And that's something that colleagues here are gonna unpick a bit more um, in a moment. But I guess just again to give an example of that, it might be an incredible achievement for one of our three and four-year-olds just to touch and feel and then mix flour and water together. So for us, they're still accessing that curriculum around cooking. They may not get as far as some of the other children, Terms of measuring or in terms of uh, adding other ingredients in, but they are accessing the same curriculum with the other children around them. They've got all of that rich learning and language um, to that that they're benefiting from. And that for us is about having an inclusive curriculum, but it's also about saying we mustn't put limits on children's learning because sometimes children might have some temporary difficulties with their learning and if you take them away from that rich mainstream curriculum and all the scaffolding and vocabulary and talking you may be taking them away from where the rich learning is whereas if you can support them to access it maybe they need a communication board rather than to use spoken language you're still giving them the chance to learn and develop just like any other child And again, some of the people we engaged with during the Development Matters process included um, a young person who as a child in a primary school had a lot of issues around shyness and confidence and had ADHD, but in that inclusive school environment starting from the early years, really thrived because no one believed that she couldn't do great things even though she did have some barriers to her learning. And she's now Studying for a doctorate in neuroscience, and um, because of the support that the whole education system gave her from the early years, a child with an autism spectrum disorder who was very distressed a lot of their time in nursery and found it very difficult to communicate at all. Now, reading books, studying at university. Now, not all of those young children with developmental challenges in the early years are necessarily going to go along those pathways. But I don't necessarily know who is and who isn't. And that's why we have to offer that inclusive and ambitious curriculum for every single child. Um, So that's what I mean by every child can thrive. That doesn't mean that every child gets to the same place. But if you think about where they started from and the progress they made, you are confident that they access the curriculum and that they're really thriving with you. Um, Play, play is absolutely central to the earliest curriculum. Okay, we all know that because we're working with the children and we see it every day and we see how powerful it is. And we also know it from research that, for example, freely chosen play is a very, very powerful way that children become better at persisting with difficulties uh, in their thinking, in their metacognition, So practice tells us and research tells us that play is at the heart uh, of what children should be experiencing throughout the EYFS. And it's there in the statutory framework and it's there in Development Matters. And the final thing I'd say there about curriculum is that focus I talked about earlier, continuous improvement. Okay, Development Matters is really intended as a quick guide to children's development and also the ways that adults can help them. It doesn't set the limit on our ambitions and it mustn't. We've got to do way better than that for the children we're working with. And that's why that focus on professional development, but also using uh, good tools to track uh, how well our provision is working for the children that we're uh, caring for and educating. That's, uh, that's really important.
0: Brilliant, thank you very much for that Julian. So um, I'd now like to welcome Lindsay. Uh, So Lindsay Foster is a Deputy Head Teacher at Sheringham Nursery School and Children's Centre. Thank you very much for taking the time to to join us Um, and if I could hand over to you now for for your bit, that would be fabulous. Thanks Lindsay. Thank you
3: Jill. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Forest School um, and how we offer it at Sheringham Nursery School and Children's Centre. So here we offer forest school to all children and we take small groups of children in blocks of six weeks. Uh, Previously we would take 12 children, but given the circumstances, we're starting off with six at the minute. So every child in our nursery gets to experience forest school uh, and it takes place off-site in the local park. Um, We have a clear curriculum which is ambitious for all children, uh, for our Forest School and because it is set out so clearly we know where the children are and how we need to support them during our Forest School sessions. So we support them by, uh, through learning step by step for each child and we get to know them really well and again we can identify any barriers to their learning particularly whilst we're there at Forest School in a smaller group with um, more adult child interactions taking place. Um, And I thought I would share just a little short example of one particular child and the progress that he made um, through his journey at Forest School. So, Child D was very confident in nursery, playing and exploring, interacting with his peers, really physical, so it was his turn to go to Forest School. What happened at Forest School was we saw a completely different side to him and he wasn't very confident at Forest School and wasn't very keen in particular to take part in um, certain challenging activities, particularly tree climbing. And that kind of struck me a little bit in the sense that I never expected that of that particular child who was so confident and outgoing in in the nursery setting. Um, so, when, whilst at Forest School, we talked through with the child, you know, what it was, his fears, why he was scared of climbing a tree, um, and it was okay for him to watch the others whilst they were doing it, and, and the practitioner stood with him, talked through what was happening, and allowed him to watch whilst his peers were climbing trees. Uh, the practitioner then scaffolded his learning and... Also supported him to climb other parts in the forest, small logs, tree stumps, and and also talked this through quite a lot with with this particular child. Um, Across the six weeks, there was lots and lots of opportunities for this particular child to revisit the learning, um, for tree climbing, to climb logs, again to watch his peers and talk through with the practitioner about his fears and how to overcome them. Across the six weeks towards the end he did have a go at climbing a tree and the practitioner really supported that by standing back and guiding his learning through conversation and this was a huge moment um, to celebrate for him and he was really excited to share that with his parents at the end of the day. So taking it back to the curriculum, although we had a broad curriculum in place and what our aims for all the children were, this was really tailored to his needs and what he needed throughout the six weeks. Uh, And again, uh, overcoming that barrier that that we had identified uh, for him for that particular child. So moving on from that, uh, we are very inclusive for all children in our nursery. And it's really important that those children with special educational needs are also included and given the same opportunities to experience Forest School. And it's important that then we tailor the planning and our curriculum to meet their particular needs. Another short example of another child's story at Forest School um, was child A. So child A had a diagnosis of autism and was really, really struggling and really was uh, finding it hard to manage changes in her routine. So before we even attempted to take her to Forest School, a lot of preparation was put in place before that. So we would take her on local walks around the area to get her used to coming out of nursery Um, and again introducing her to the waterproof clothing and wellies, which she was very much uh, adverse to and didn't want to put on. So um, the first session of Forest School, we managed to get her out of the setting and Walking along the way, she held the practitioner's hand, which was something her parent in particular was very worried about. Um, And when we got to Forest School, her journey was very different to the others, and that was okay. Um, She was very self-directed, but very much in tune with the environment and really wanted to explore leaves and natural materials and trees. And that was okay, and we built on her learning and her interests step-by-step across the six weeks. But also the practitioner who was supporting her throughout her journey would also model different strategies and how to play alongside others and socially interact with the group. By the end of the six weeks for this particular child, um, she was playing alongside the other children, which was huge because at the beginning, she was very self-directed and was not going near the other children, wanted to uh, kind of explore independently. But by the end, she was playing alongside and joining in uh, by doing some actions with the song that we sang for for Forest School. Um, Also by the end of the six weeks, she was wearing waterproofs. And for her mum, that was an amazing uh, celebration and really a moment for her mum to recognise that that was a progress that her particular child made during Forest School. Um, We work very closely in partnership with parents, particularly uh, with Forest School, and we invite the parents in at the end of the six weeks to talk about what the children have been learning across uh, their experience, and also um, to talk about, you know, they've made friends with other children, that their parents might have been worried about before. We talk about how they've overcome new challenges and tried new activities that they they were very much saying no in the beginning um, for that child wearing waterproof. So really unpicking the learning for the parents to understand the importance of learning outdoors and also um, the benefits of it as well as what they were learning from doing that. So I think to take me back to where I first started and talking about the importance of having um, a really clear and balanced curriculum, uh, particularly for Forest School for us, gives us, we know what we want the children to learn, however we can tailor that learning particularly for individual children um, and we don't need to stick to certain bands and criteria, we go with what the children really need to learn and um, scaffold in the moment whilst we're there at Forest School.
0: Thank you very much for that, Lindsay. It's uh, really lovely to hear a hands-on story of how Forest School is uh, is working so well for you in your setting. Thank you for that. Um, okay, so back to you, Julian. Thank you.
2: Yeah, so sorry, everyone, but you're stuck back with me again after Lindsay's uh, lovely uh, interjection there around Forest School, which is really one of our delights here at, uh, at, at Sheringham. And what I would say, uh, just, I guess, to give you the big picture before we go into this bit of the presentation, which is about assessment and tracking and data, is none of the team working on Forest School had big lists of next steps for children's development. Um, They didn't. They knew the big picture of what they wanted children to do on Forest School. They had that progression model so that week one really is about getting there and feeling confident to be outdoors and getting to know the Forest School space. Uh, And then gradually all the different things they learn in terms of investigating all the the different trees and leaves and other living things and using the the saw and making the fire and singing the forest school song. So that's that's the progression model. And like Lindsay said, the staff know that model. And so they can scaffold children and help them on an individual basis. And they can both go with the child, but also balance that with introducing them to new experiences and teaching them new things. And I hope that is, if you like, a powerful story that is in the background of the next section here, which is about tracking and checklists. So we know from talking to lots of practitioners that tracking and the data associated with it have become very problematic um, in the early years, that they have uh, become a huge workload issue Uh, And in no way um, did the previous version of Development Matters encourage that to happen. But it did happen and we are where we are. And we know from the early years Alliance's report, Mind Matters, that many staff find themselves caught up in huge amounts of workload around data and tracking that takes them away from the children. Now, none of the people that I've talked to over the years, in the early years, has ever told me yet, that they came into work in early years because they wanted to gather a lot of information about children and put it into cells on a spreadsheet and then track it and analyze it. But we've all ended up doing this. Why? I think everyone in the system has to put their hands up and say, I was part of the problem. So I know as a head teacher, I was part of the problem because we had a model here where we expected to see that sort of uh, assessment information about children and to analyze it. And there was definitely an expectation from Ofsted um, in our inspection eight years ago, they wanted to to see that. And other national organizations, including the DfE, including third party organisations, all of us created this climate. So what matters now is we move into a more humane and sensible and sane space. So we know the extent of some of the problems we've got because um, early adopter schools are struggling to use development matters to do the sorts of data things that they're used to doing with the old development matters. So they're saying, well, what band should children beyond and beyond rather? And how can I split that up? into kind of emerging and secure. And what is my baseline data going to be? So this is going to be a big shift for all of us in the early years. And here I'd like to really pay tribute to the courage of the early adopter schools who are working this out with our help and support as we go along. So there's no reason that last year anyone should be doing any of that stuff either with development matters. Ofsted wasn't asking for it but clearly a lot of people were. So when we're thinking about, for example, children coming new into a reception class or to any earlier setting, yes, it is important that we establish that child's starting point. So how do we do it? So here, again, just to give an example, and I'm giving this as an example, not as a kind of, this is what everyone else should do. Uh, We spend time looking at children's um, confidence, how confidently they come in. Can they play on their own? Do they need a parent with them to play? Are they confident enough to make links with and, and, and play with other children, for example, around their confidence? Communication. Are they using body language to make contact with other people? Are they very much not wanting to communicate? Are they saying a few words either in their home language or in English? maybe they're talking in sentences. Again, with their physical development, we're thinking about how they're moving around, how confident they are, are they able to climb the log steps up our slide, are they able to get onto a trike, those sorts of things. And of course, we're seeing that a lot of children are struggling with a lot of aspects of coming into our setting because of the situation they've been in uh, with the pandemic uh, and the fact that they just haven't had the same sort of play and exploration opportunities that children of that age normally had uh, before they come new into nursery. So we make a few brief notes about this. So we might just note down the words the child has said or the body language they showed or what what it was like the first time they moved away from their dad or their mum and played on their own. We get the parents to tell us about their children's learning and development confidence at home. We ask children Uh, to tell us how they're finding coming into nursery or if that's not developmentally possible we'll base it on what we're noticing about their body language you know are they the kids who are raring to go or are they the children that are still very shy about coming in and that's how we establish their starting points and the reason we're doing it is because amongst that big group of children there's a small group of children who are struggling a bit we need to give them a bit of extra help we need to get to know them more We need to work with their parents more. We may need to link up with their health visitor. And a lot of those kids are just taking a bit longer to settle in than other children, and it's all gonna fall into place. But I know when we get to six weeks down the line, there's still gonna be a few children we're a bit worried about. Do we need data and tracking and emerging 30 to 50 or secure 16 to 26 to do this job? We don't. Not only do we not need it, it adds hugely to everyone's workload and it takes everyone away from what we should be doing, which is helping these new children to come into reception classes or nurseries or nursery classes. It doesn't help, it's not useful, it adds to practitioner stress and workload. Ofsted don't want to see that sort of data about children's starting points. They do say that they want you to know children's starting points, but there's no expectation that that is done in a data form and used for the purposes of tracking. So a very, very big flag that everyone is waving through the updated development matters is right now, do what you're used to doing. Don't start bringing in new systems of observation and assessment based on the new development matters. Stick to what works for you over the year think about that curve what are the things you're going to be looking for about children's development at key points over a year what's going to make you feel confident that a child is doing well what's going to raise concerns for you is the progress model in your curriculum clear enough so that the large majority of children are doing well through all the activities you offer them every day and every week and every month get all of that information in a sensible way without generating lots of data and without tracking. And one further thing I'd say about that data is it's rarely if ever reliable. So in other words, lots of research tells us that it's very difficult to make an accurate assessment of a child's level of development in terms of months based on any sort of framework. It's really, really tricky to do. So if we put a huge amount of effort into doing that, we're we're likely to end up with a lot of data that is not, not only not helpful, but also inaccurate. Whereas what we're really good at early as practitioners is the sort of stuff Lindsay was talking about. Noticing where children have difficulties, helping them find their own ways through or over or around those difficulties making sure that they can access that curriculum where they can make progress, the curriculum having a progression model. So what sort of assessment is useful? Um, First of all, uh, we've used this phrase here, I've used this phrase here, checkpoints, not checklists. So there are some checkpoints in the new development matters and they're there in case people are a bit worried about a child's early development. They're suggestions, they're not intended for you to use for every child, and they're definitely not intended to be turned into a checklist, but they are there. Maybe you're having a discussion in your team about a child's physical development, and you might say, oh, let's just have a look back at development matters and see if that helps us have this discussion and pinpoint maybe where this child is doing really well and where they're having some difficulties. Um, The sort of assessment that our project Celebrating Children's Learning told us was really powerful was assessment which uh, focused on practitioners noticing big steps in children's learning when children do those amazing things. You know, that child who started nursery and was just really spending one or two minutes here or there and not really engaging in anything. The first time they maybe spent half an hour playing with uh, the blocks, building some amazing structure. That was really significant. So what should the practitioner have been doing during that period of time? We would say they should have been available for the child to encourage them to keep going, or if necessary, they should have stepped in to help the child. Um, They should have made a quick note of what that child was doing that was significant. They maybe need to think, okay, tomorrow, let's really make sure that we make space for this child to carry on building that model, maybe protect the model uh, at the end of the day so they can go back to it. Um, How does that look over time? Making a note of that, thinking about what we as practitioners can do to help, sharing that with parents, then and also sharing that back with children, that kind of conversation that's like, let's just have a look at that picture of you making the castle, Jamal. What was going on for you then? you remember that bit kept falling down how did you make sure it stood up so that's getting children's voices and views into our assessment system and again we also know from the research that children reflecting on their own learning is a very powerful way for them to develop their metacognition i.e their understanding of how they go about learning so that is really valuable it celebrates the child it brings the parent in It helps us as practitioners think about building the child's learning over time. It involves the child. It helps them with their metacognition. Those things are really worth doing. Turning that into numbers, putting it into a spreadsheet, turning it into some sort of tracking process, that never helped any child in itself. And that's the culture that we've got decisively to turn away from. And that's what Development Matters is signaling in a big way uh, to, to, to our sector. And again, just to end on that really important note, it's about all children thriving. So if we want children to thrive, we've got to be really perceptive at noticing anything that gets in the way of them accessing that rich curriculum on a progress model so we can quickly give them the extra help they need so that they can thrive um and just to remind people uh the both the existing statutory framework and the early adopter framework make it very clear that there is no expectation that practitioners spend large amounts of time gathering information about children this whole thing about evidence is a red herring okay so we're not all about well what's the evidence that the child learned that because we trust our practitioners to understand and know the children they're working with we're not asking for evidence we're just asking practitioners to jot down the things that are significant and the things that they might forget if they didn't make a note which in my case is practically everything that happens through the day so i know i have to jot down those notes um and again these these are themes which I'm going to conclude on that are really significant for understanding the revised development matters and where it presents huge opportunities for us uh, in the early years. Okay, so um, if I had to sum up what high quality assessment looks like, um, it's definitely about very careful and perceptive noticing of what children can do and thinking about what that means in terms of their learning. When you notice a lot, when you think about it carefully, you know either in the minute how to help the child or what to make sure you provide the next day. Um, the, The progress model is really important. Bringing in children's voices and reflections is not only important because children are active participants and makers of this early years curriculum, but it's also important because that's the way that children become more powerful learners. Parents have to be part of this process and it all has to be seen in the context that we are inclusive and we want every child to do well. We want every child to thrive. So I'm going to hand over to Tanya in a second. Tanya Is our Special Educational Needs and Disabilities Coordinator and she's just going to talk a little bit more about some of those features of inclusive practice that she um, has been leading on here at Sheringham.
4: So I'm going to talk a little bit about um, inclusion and how we sort of do things with regards to SEND at Sheringham Nursery School. So here at Sheringham we really pride ourselves on getting to know the children early on. So at the home visits we speak to parents who know the children best of course And once they've started we observe the children and as a team we discuss the children individually. We share our thoughts and observations with parents um, offering offering them the opportunity to shed light on anything that we may have missed. Where we identify barriers we discuss this with parents openly. We ask for their opinions and take their opinions into considerations. Sometimes parents actually come to us with um, barriers that they've identified at home and of course we take this on board but the main thing is we all work together to come to a conclusion about the right level of support that we should put in place for the child. Some children have speech and language difficulties that with the right level of support um, those difficulties can, can be overcome. However, there are some children that have, have a higher level of need. So that may be social communication difficulties, physical needs or sensory needs, and they require a much higher level of support, um, and certainly for many, which is lifelong as well. So it's about identifying the need early on to be able to put the right level of support in place early on as well. It just gets a ball rolling for everyone. And the view of supporting children to overcome their barriers to learning is certainly a more social model, um, social model of approach to SEND, which is very much different to the medical approach, which looks at um, SEND as being an uh, issue with the child, that the issue, the problem is in the child. And I think levelled assessments sort of sit with that more medical approach. We know that there are some people who use the old development matters to make assessments to say that a two-year-old is working at the birth to 11 months level, but actually that isn't appropriate. They aren't working younger. Our children with SEND have their own unique strengths and barriers to learning, which means that it's far more important for us to use a better assessment um, such as developmental journals that we use at nursery. For example, we had a child at our nursery who had a dual diagnosis of cerebral palsy and autism. And if I'd used the leveled assessments to sort of map where he's at, then he would never have made progress. But because we used an alternative form of assessment with him, we used a developmental journal, we were able to celebrate some of the wonderful things that he managed to achieve in his three years at nursery. So holding a spoon, his first few steps, um, his first request at saying more, um, you know, holding eye contact for more than five seconds to to show us how happy he was by something. Those things wouldn't have been captured if we used the old development matters, for example, but they were in the alternative assessment that we used for him. Um, so every child thriving is that they may not make the same achievements, but they are accessing a broad and balanced environment. And so from their starting points, they are making progress. Development Matters is a starting point for some children and we need to have systems in place for continuous improvement. So we need to make adaptions for the children so that they can access their curriculum. Something that supported us to um, make adaptions is the inclusive classroom profile. Um, And the ICP was a fantastic tool in helping us to evaluate and improve how we sort of encourage inclusion at our nursery. And this seven point scale made us sit and reflect on which parts of our nursery we needed to improve more on. So to give an example, and this is of course pre-COVID, um, once we sort of evaluated our nursery we noticed that we needed to focus a little bit more on supporting peer interactions, so that's interactions between children who have SEND and children who don't. And there is a lot of research out there to indicate that children with SEND are more likely to be victims of bullying as they grow older and to have fewer friendships. So that's why that particularly stood out to us. So we made a real effort and a real drive to ensure that we focused on encouraging those peer relations throughout the year. That was by um, delivering greater interventions around social skills and um, focusing more on it in our planning and making it more something to discuss amongst our sort of staff team, had training from our speech and language therapists as well. So my point is that, you know, we, we adapted something that we already had in place to meet the needs of the children with SEND. And that's really key isn't it? it isn't about getting our children with SEND to fit in what we have, to fit in what we already have in place, but it's more us adapting what we're doing. So it works for our children with SEND.
0: Fabulous. Thank you so much, Tanya. It's really lovely to to interject today's presentation with uh, some examples about how everything's all happening in in real life. Uh, So thank you very much for that. So um, back to you again, Julian. Thank you.
2: Right. Well, sorry that you're stuck with me again for the next uh, few slides uh, after hearing from Tanya there. Um, And I'm really just wrapping wrapping up uh, here now, which is to go back to where this presentation started. The revised development matters offers us many exciting opportunities and I hope that's come across through the discussion and through the Q&A and will again come across in a moment with the the final section of questions um, with Jill. Um, All children will benefit from high quality early education and care but what's exciting about the findings of the EPSI project is that it's disadvantaged children who will benefit the most. So in other words, this is something we should do for everybody. It's worth doing in itself. But it has the fantastic side effect that that high quality early education and care will particularly benefit the children who need it the most. And the EPSI project also told us excitingly that not only will those children do really well in their early years setting, but that difference will persist through their primary and secondary education and will make a difference to their life chances. So that is why this focus on making sure that every child thrives, that making sure that disadvantaged children do well in the early years is so central to all of this. And allied to that is putting our efforts where they'll make the most difference. So when I sit behind a computer doing a lot of tracking. That doesn't improve the learning or the care experience of any child here at Sheringham. Makes no difference to them at all. It's not where I should put my effort. Where the effort needs to go is in the development of that rich and high quality and inclusive curriculum that's on a progress model. And then making sure that we're offering the children all the help and scaffolding they might need, either all of the time or just at particular times, so that they can access that curriculum. That's where our efforts make the biggest difference. And that's where the early years has such a powerful and terrific history in our country, which is we are all passionate about making sure that every child can thrive. But we know when we look at the outcomes for children, there's still more to do. And by reducing the scope of this document, by putting more emphasis on that inclusive curriculum model, that is intended to free up times for practitioners to redouble our efforts uh, in this important area. Which leads me really to a final call to action for our whole sector. Trust. It can't be right that senior leaders or other people need lots of data to be sure that teachers and early years educators are doing a good job for the children they're working with. We've got to make sure that our teachers and early years educators have the help, the support, the professional development they need. And we've got to put our trust in them the professionalism of our workforce is our key strength in the early years. And I think again, if there was one focus for lots of people who are involved in the early years, one focus that is worth zeroing in on, it's this. Put our efforts into continuing the improvement of the professionalism and the capability of the workforce. And as we do that, put put our trust there too, because that's the way that leaders, managers in settings, all the people out there in the early years, that's the way we can make a difference, is with that combination of support, challenge, opportunities for professional development, and trust. Thank you. So I'm going to hand back to Jill now for our second Q&A.
0: Thank you, Julian. Thank you so much for that. Um, and yeah, brilliant there. Lovely. I feel awful asking more questions after you've sort of concluded that so lovely about the, the passion that we have within the sector that is, uh, that is just amazing. So uh, we've had lots of, um, lots of the questions that have been sent in, um, you and uh, along with Lindsay and Tanya have very helpfully covered um, a great deal of those questions, um, so great. thank you very much for that. So just got a few more to uh, shine the spotlight on you, interrogate you a little bit further before we end, if that's okay. Okay, of course. So um, one of the questions we've got is about the characteristics of effective teaching and learning. And asking about what the rationale for the changes that are made in this element of the document are. Uh, So some of the comments we've received say things like the sections reduced in scope um, that it feels a bit narrower and more adult led and some of the change the statements have changed from talking about how children learn and with further statements about what children would be uh, should be learning.
2: Those are all important questions. So I think the first thing to say about characteristics of effective teaching and learning is that it actually has an expanded place in the new document, not a diminished space. It's the only bit of the document, um, the only section, that is actually longer in the new document than it was in the previous document, and that's really deliberate, because the early years isn't just about what children are learning, it's about how they're learning, how they're using their natural drives and curiosity to explore and play and learn, but also how we as adults can help them on that road to becoming more powerful learners. Um, people will So people will see that there is more focus on this. They'll also see that some of the organisation is a little bit different to what they saw before. In some respects, that's about bringing it more into line with the statutory framework. And in other respects, um, it's about making sure it's kept up with some of the interesting research around children's self-regulation, co-regulation, and executive function. So in other words, uh, we do see a huge role for children's freely chosen play as the canvas where we'll see the characteristics of effective learning. And that's still huge in the document. And when you read it, you'll, you'll see there are, numerous references to children's freely chosen play quite deliberately. But we're also interested in uh, thinking more about that space where adults can help children to reflect, to refine, to think about uh, their ways of going about learning, their metacognition. So that's deliberately been brought in because it looks very promising um, in a lot of the research. So It's been really carefully thought through. Um, It's been given an expanded role. It's a little bit clearer. The intention is that it's a little bit clearer to show the sort of progress you might see children making. So we do expect children to become better at learning as they get older in the EYFS, and that's uh, mapped out more clearly, I think, in the new document than it was in the old document. And the final thing to say is that in order to show your characteristics as a learner, you have to be learning something. So it wouldn't make sense not to have content and things for children to learn included in that. Uh, that, would, that would be a, a misunderstanding. To be a powerful learner, you have to be learning something. Now, it may be that the actual examples given in the right-hand column don't really fit with some of your own approaches in your setting. And that's exactly why we're signaling this focus on professional trust, because you, the practitioner, you know you're setting your children, your community and your parents. So it may be that your examples don't look like those examples, and that could well be perfectly appropriate. But those examples have been chosen for a reason, uh, and I guess in part to prompt some further discussion and dialogue uh, within the sector. And that the final thing I'd say, I'm sorry if this is an overlong answer to a, to a brief question, is there's a very useful section um, in the website from the Harvard Center for the Developing Child um, about ways that we can help children with their self-regulation and executive function. Um, and, and what the Harvard Center says is it's a mistake to split off the kind of learning that children might do through freely chosen play, and the kind of learning that they might do, which is more what we've talked about earlier, is guided learning. And what Harvard Center says is that both of those are spaces where children develop their self regulation and executive function. So let's not make this really black or white. Let's say that actually the whole repertoire of pedagogy is significant in this space, not. Not just one aspect of it.
0: Okay, so the next question I've got is that how will the new guidance affect internal or cluster moderation work?
2: That, that's also a really important question. So, one of the things that is different about the early adopter framework is that the EYFSP is no longer um, externally moderated. Um, and that has been done for a, a A set of reasons. One is around workload, and it's around the indications practitioners gave that in some, not all, but in a significant number of cases, workload was driven by local authority moderation teams wanting to see evidence, and that then drove an unhelpful culture in reception classes around accumulating evidence.
1: I know there's also
2: some really good practice out there in LA moderation teams, but but that is an important part of the feedback. So the second thing it's signalling, I think, is that the EYFSP, what, what's it there for? It, it's not primarily there to generate data. It's not appropriate to use it as an accountability measure. It's wrong if someone says to a school, here's your accountability measure on EYFSP you know, what what are you doing wrong here? It's not designed to be used like that. It's wrong if practitioners in reception classes are given performance targets that they've got to get a certain number of children to a GLD. Now, why am I saying that's wrong? Which sounds very harsh for two reasons. One is that's just not in the statute. The statute is really clear that it's not an accountability measure. But two, we know that if you put all of that emphasis on a data outcome, you distort good teaching, good learning, good care, and you drive everyone down the line of these particular targets. And I think Ofsted put this really well when they say that then schools hit the target, but they miss the point. So we've got to take the states out of EYFSP and remember what it's there to do, which is first of all, to. promote a conversation with the parent about how well their child is doing and any areas where they need any extra help. And secondly, a formative piece of assessment to help the child's transition into year one. So it needs to be accurate. If people feel under a lot of pressure to hit a data target, then they might get children to jump through those hoops and then the poor old year one teacher ends up with this child who on paper has a good level of development but actually needs far more help than perhaps they would expect. Moderation, clustering, really good. If they help us to be more accurate in our assessment, if they improve the quality of our practice, they get us in professional dialogue around children's learning. So I think they're really, really important. um, And I hope that people will continue doing them because I think they're important to our professional development. But the purpose of the profile is not an accountability measure. It's really to help children as they move on into year one.
0: Lovely, thank you very much, Julian. Okay, so massive thank you uh, to Julian for all your hard work and for uh, for allowing me to interrogate you with uh, with a load of questions here today. <laughs> um, like I said to everyone- Always a pleasure. Oh, thank you. <laughs> So to, to everybody watching as well, um, like we said at the outset, we had hundreds of, of um, questions, and they have all been read. I just want to really reassure people that those have, have all been all your questions and your comments have been have been read and, uh, and shared with um, the Department for Education. So, um, thank you to to Ada as well for your your time here today, and of course yeah, thanks, Julian, Ada. please do pass uh, your thanks on to Lindsay and Tanya as well for, for their time. Sure will. Thank you. Okay, so um, thank you also to our Foundation Years community out there for everybody, like I said, who submitted all of those questions and for engaging with this, uh, with this vodcast today. If you have any further questions or comments on the new development matters, please do submit them uh, to the Foundation Years inbox and um, you'll find an email on the slide on the Foundation Years website. Uh, if you're not already a member of the free Foundation Years community, please do visit our website to sign up. Follow us on Twitter, like our Facebook page, Uh, you'll receive regular updates on the latest policy announcements and resources uh, from the sector, as well as information and opportunities to share your views with the department. So, finally, thank you everybody for taking the time to watch this podcast, Um, and most of all, thank you to everybody for all your hard work and commitment and outstanding passion for supporting our youngest children. I appreciate there are some really difficult conversations that have been happening right now and over the last few months. Um, at the heart of it all is, from everybody, a desire to do the very best for our youngest children, and particularly in these really difficult times that are affected by a world pandemic. So just um, a huge and heartfelt thank you uh, from me again. Thank you.